If you have your Bibles, turn with you to the book of Isaiah, and we'll read a very familiar verse, a messianic prophecy, which once again around the world today, tonight, will be recited by so many, many preachers. Isaiah chapter 7, at verse 14, where the Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. Now, turn with me to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and it is the 40th book of the Bible. In chapter 1 of Matthew, we see the fulfillment of the verse that we just read from the book of Isaiah. So let's start at verse 21, where the Bible says, And she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The title of this message is very simple, just one word. Emmanuel. We often use the phrase, God is with us. That phrase is used by many, many people when they believe their cause is righteous. God is on our side. God is with us. But the word here, Emmanuel, obviously means a whole lot more than just some type of nebulous idea that God is on our side. But that God came to earth and became a man. And as we see, and we will see, he is called the Son of God, Jesus. I want to just share with you something that you may know, but I would imagine a lot of you probably don't know. Are you aware of the tremendous coincidences between President Lincoln and President Kennedy? Let me just read to you some of these things. It's very interesting. And most of what I'm about to read to you is just a simple fact of history. Little question on one or two of the issues, but it has bearing on what I want to share with you this morning. Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860, and John Kennedy was elected in 1960, exactly 100 years later. There are seven letters in each name. Both presidents were assassinated on Friday, and both in the presence of their wives. Both were directly concerned with civil rights, and both had the legality of their elections contested. Nothing new under the sun. President Kennedy's secretary's name was Lincoln, who warned him not to go to Dallas. Lincoln's secretary's name was Kennedy, who warned him not to go to the theater. By the way, that part is contested by some. Both of their successors were named Johnson, Andrew Johnson and Lyndon Johnson. Each name contains 13 letters. Both men served in the U.S. Senate, and both were Southern Democrats. Andrew Johnson was born in 1808, and Lyndon Johnson was born in 1908. Booth and Oswald were both Southerners favoring unpopular ideas. Oswald shot Kennedy from a warehouse and hid in a the theater, and Booth shot Lincoln in a the theater and hid in a warehouse, which was actually a barn that stored tobacco. Booth and Oswald were both murdered before a trial could be arranged. Booth and Oswald were born 100 years apart, and each name, Lee Harvey Oswald and John Wilkes Booth, has 15 letters. Both married in their 30s to women in their 20s. 
Both were shot in the head, Lincoln and Kennedy. Both Lincoln and Kennedy had security agents named William, who each died within 48 hours of attaining the age of 75 years and five months. Lincoln's bodyguard, William Crook, was born 1815, 1893, and died March the 13th, 1915. Kennedy's Secret Service agent, William Greer, was born September 22nd, 1909, and died February 23rd, 1985. Each assassin committed his crime while in the place where he was regularly employed. Booth worked as an actor at Ford's Theater. Oswald was employed at the Texas School Book Depository. Lincoln and Kennedy both suffered the loss of a child while serving as president. Willie Lincoln died from typhoid fever at the age of 11 in 1862, and the premature baby of JFK and his wife Jackie, named Patrick, passed away at just two days old in 1963. And so you have these undesigned coincidences between President Lincoln and President Kennedy, which is, at least for me, pretty fascinating, since it has no real direct correlation to what I'm going to show you in just a moment about the Bible, it is interesting to note these historical coincidences that exist in life. And I would say, knowing that God is sovereign, a subject I discussed with you or taught you last week, there must be something to it that perhaps has some relevance to our life. Another interesting fact of United States history is that three of the founding fathers all died on July the 4th. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died not only on July the 4th, they died on the exact same day, only a few hours apart. When Adams died, by the way, he was saying, well, thank God that we still have Jefferson, but he didn't know that Jefferson was passing away on the same day. And then we also have James Monroe, who also died on July the 4th. Again, is there any relevance to this, or is it simply undesigned coincidence? doesn't really matter. It's just kind of interesting. But when it comes to the Bible, we have something that's more than just coincidence and more than something that's simply an undesigned coincidence. We have approximately 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. And of those 2,500 prophecies found in the Bible, about 2,000 have already come to pass, exactly as they were written. This, by the way, is what makes this Bible unique. That's what makes this book unique. And I do feel that there are many dedicated Christians who spend so much time in the Bible, and I mean by that simply just reading a devotional each morning. Some of you do some study. You can become so familiar with this forest that you can't describe a tree because you're in it so much. It actually can become, doesn't have to become, can become a disadvantage. It's superficial. Now for me, as I shared with you a week or two back, I'm finding that the Bible, once again, is coming alive. Verses that I know here are expanding, as I just shared with you. Think of the word Emmanuel, but not in a metaphoric way. God is on our side, but in a literal way, that we would be walking with the Creator. As John would say in 1 John chapter 1, we touched Him, we knew Him, we heard Him, and so forth. The one that created all things. We touched him. Remember that God said to Moses, when Moses asked to see God, he said, no flesh can see me and live. Yet, and I'll give you the verses in just a few minutes, yet when we read the New Testament, we see that God did become a man. This is the gospel. 2,500 prophecies, about 500 that are yet to be fulfilled, which we cover this subject of eschatology, the future. 
which we're living right now, as you know. The probability of 2,000 prophecies written down, coming to pass exactly as they were written down, has been calculated as one chance in 10 to the 2,000th power. Now, if you know math, you know what power means, the power to 10 to the power of 10 means 10 followed by 10 zeros. It's a pretty big number. But if I had my whiteboard up here, and we put one chance in 10 to the 2,000th power and tried to write out that number, I'd have to write so small, even though the board is fairly large, zero so small so to fit 2,000 zeros behind the number 10. One chance in 10 to the 2,000th power. And that's actually a conservative figure based on the prophecies, some of which were filled within a few years, couple of 10, 20, 30, and some in a few centuries, and some announced thousands of years ago, being fulfilled right now. Emmanuel, God with us, whom we have known, again, John, the Apostle John, whom we have known, whom we have touched, whom we have seen, the eyes beheld him, Emmanuel. And we must consider on this Christmas Eve that the creator of the world stated that he would never leave us and never forsake us. And again, the creator of the world who became man said that I am with you always. And again, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Emmanuel. So I mentioned to you just some interesting things, and they are, to me at least, very interesting when you read about modern technology and discoveries that are being made in neuroplasticity and other things as man is discovering more things about the universe, about himself, and all of this, it's interesting to me that we have the name Emmanuel that tells us that God is not with us just in some, again, philosophical way or some metaphorical way, but that he's actually with us in spirit. And in spirit, I do not mean as we in sports say, can't we? you have to have the spirit. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. God in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ inside you, the hope of glory. Where we're being changed from glory to glory, from faith to faith. That's why, and I'll use this phrase, if you're advanced in your reading of the Bible, that means you've been around it for a while. And those of you who do not only devotions, but you take time to study the commentaries or whatever you use, Bible dictionaries and so on. As you advance yourself, the norm is that you should be finding yourself being continually challenged to be changed into that glory to glory. If that's not your experience, then you need to pray and you need to seek the Lord as to why very imposing statements in this Bible are either being forgotten or neglected. You know, I had a habit years ago of reading before I went to sleep, and I don't do that much anymore because it stimulates my thinking, unlike a lot of people who say, if I read, I fall asleep. I don't. If I read, it makes me come awake. And I used to read the Bible before I went to sleep at night, but it just made my mind so active that I found I couldn't sleep. So I don't read the Bible at night. I'll meditate on it all day long from the beginning of the day until some portion of the day. Then I just let my mind become a little bit more, well, passive is not the exact word I want to use, but just a little bit more at ease. And then I just meditate on the word. Emmanuel, God with us. As the scriptures say, if God be for us, who could be against us? 
If God be for us, who could be against us? Jesus teaches us, or will at least from his birth onward in his ministry, teach us that we don't need to fear man who only has at best the power to destroy our bodies. But rather we are to fear and to reverence him that has the power to destroy both the body and the soul, spirit, in that place that we know is hell. And I'm fascinated by this. I don't know if it's because of my own attraction to the Bible or something else. Why professing Christians are not, as I just mentioned, that I, I cannot read the Bible at night. It doesn't put me to sleep. It just it wakes me up. My mind just starts going all over the place. And I don't think that it's just because I was blessed with the gift of teaching. I do believe it's because, I'll use the word, I am intrigued by these things that I find. Let me say this again. I have never been in a position, and there's one or two exceptions to this rule. I have never been in a position when preaching put me to sleep. Now, there have one or two exceptions when people who are genuinely not called to preach, who don't make any sense when they're talking, and even then, I didn't find it put me to sleep as much as I found it vexing. You can't figure out just what point are they trying to make. But I've never found myself able to fall asleep when someone is preaching because it stimulates my thinking. And we know that the Bible does not profit and did not profit some, and it still won't profit some. That's the Bible being read, being heard, being listened to if it's not mixed with faith. If it's not mixed with faith, I never want to go so far as to say, don't read it at all, but I'm almost forced into that position. What's the sense of reading it if you actually don't really believe it? How can you overcome the darkness of this world if you don't believe that Jesus actually is the light? That he who came, as we know, born in the manger, we won't talk about that today. These extraordinary events of Jesus' entire life, from the announcement of his birth, the prophecies... Most scholars estimate that Jesus fulfilled in the neighborhood of 300 prophecies out of those 2,500, 300 messianic prophecies. Alfred Edersheim, the Jewish convert to Christianity who was a great scholar, estimates by comparing the Bible with rabbinical writings that Jesus fulfilled about 456 prophecies. And once again, we come up with a number that is so large that we cannot fathom this with our human minds. Or as Plato said, God is too big for our small minds. We come up with numbers that are so large that our minds tell us intuitively there's no way this could have happened by chance. Or we'll use the word luck. I would submit to you the Bible properly understood is so stimulating that it not only would cause you to stay awake at night rather than falling asleep, as I've heard so many say over the years. I can't read the Bible at night because I fall asleep. I would submit to you that the Bible is so stimulating in all that it is, all that it says, and then the evidence of what we see in the past, now here in the present, what's coming in the future, that you would never, ever, and should never get bored from reading the scriptures, even the genealogies. The Bible is the word of God. And I gave you these verses last week. Let me just give you a couple of them as a reminder of why I believe the Bible stimulates the spirit, soul, and even the body of men, people. When we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 at verse 13, For this cause thank we God also without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth. The word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It works. 
in you that believe. That's one of the key things in the professing Christian's life. That after a number of years, you find that it works. That wherever you place yourself, it works. Or in my case, when I read secular works of science or physiology and other things, that that principle lies somewhere already in the Bible. It may seem obscure to some, but others who then delve into that subject, not biblically, but in science or whatever it may be, corroborate the testimony that this was written by God. Second Peter, well, Second Timothy 2, but Second Peter chapter 1 at verse 20 and 21, we read the words that say this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It doesn't lie alone. It's not designed to be something that one person says, this is what it means to me. And somebody else says, well, this is what it's saying to me. We had those kind of Bible studies. They may still be going on, which I think were well-intentioned. But you'd have a bunch of people with no background in theology and no background in, and maybe no real aptitude for the proper study of scripture. Sit around reading the scriptures. That's a good thing. But they would ask the question, well, what does that verse say to you? And what does that verse say? That's not what we want to do. We want to know what does the verse say? And then make an application based on what it actually says. And this is actually the point. But let me finish 2 Peter 1. 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Listen, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men. So when you read the titles of these books and you read Isaiah, Psalms written mostly by David, but others as well, and you read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and 1 Peter and 2 Peter and Timothy and all of these, these men all were chosen by God over a period of 1500 years about 40 of them altogether, as 1 Peter 1 verse 21 then continues, it says, For the prophecy of old time came not by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That verse alone, combined with the one I just gave you in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, is saying something so profound that I find myself, and I have done this for years, I have to pick it apart one word at a time. It's like just a great meal. You just don't dive into it. You have to look at all this here. You've been given. And the word of God boils down to not just the verses themselves, but the words. Emmanuel, God with us. Once again, not in a loose sense. Not in some type of ethereal sense. God with us. And we know this from reading the scriptures. The people with themselves would testify that no man ever spoke like this, speaking of Jesus, speaking of Emmanuel. No man ever spoke like this. Secondly, they said no man ever did the works that he did. And this is true. Let's suppose for a moment that Jesus is a mythological person. He never really existed. He's not a historical person. Starting at that level, if we compare him to the great philosophers of the world, he's still incomparable. You could read Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Seneca and Aurelius and so many other of all the philosophers, ancient and modern, and none of them compared to Jesus, and that's if he was mythological, if he didn't actually exist and all this was just made up. But we know from the records of others that Jesus is a historical person. And the testimony of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, testify to things the world has never seen coming from one person. Emmanuel, God with us. 
Now, for an application of this truth, when you really think about it, and many of you are biblically literate here, what do we really have to worry about? From the worst prognosis based on a diagnosis given to you at the hospital or the doctors to the news that we all hear and all of these other things, the profundity of the Bible, not just the verses again, but the words as you meditate on them and think about them. And then we hear this, John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is true, or truth. You'll find that all of a sudden your problems don't go away. It's just that they pale in significance to the magnificence of God, to the tremendous, inexpressible being that we know as God. And yet, and I say this respectfully, and yet when you listen to yourself, I won't put in when others listen to you, when you listen to yourself complaining about this or that, and I'm not putting myself outside that circle. I'm just at a point where I'm realizing this is not something I want to do anymore. I want to find myself in Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord Jehovah, for in the Lord is everlasting strength, and so on. But when you find yourself complaining about this or that, we know that now our attention has been taken away from the great and mighty God. We're not seeing his work, as I shared with you last week, his sovereignty. We're not seeing these thousands of scriptures that have already come to pass exactly as they were prophesied by the prophets, well, by God, through the prophets. And we're not thinking of that which was to come. And I was getting into my car to come here today. I was thanking God for that which is to come. I was thinking of the kingdom I was thinking of that which would be, should it be 100 years, 200, I don't know. But I was thinking of the government, as we're going to read that verse in just a moment. I was thinking about the government being upon his shoulders. That the government that's coming is not a republic. That the government that is coming is not a democratic form of government. It's not a dictatorship. It's God ruling. I'm even reluctant to say it's a theocracy, because this is what we have in the Old Testament, of God speaking to Moses and so on, leadership, Joshua. But God himself ruling and reigning, as we see when we read in the book of the Revelation. God himself. And I submit to you once again, if the heart is softened through obedience to God, and these seeds of the word of God begin to really sink in, and there's true faith, it changes the entire nature of what is inside you. It washes the mind. It gives you hope, gives you peace, gives you joy. Because we are now walking in the Spirit, not just reading verses on the page. When we say Emmanuel, we know that God is with us wherever we go. Again, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. No matter how lonely you may feel, God is with you, Emmanuel. But not, again, in just an allegorical sense. I will be with you even to the end of the age, wherever you go, Emmanuel. God is with you. When we look at these scriptures, we go to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now look at this here. Of the increase of his government and peace, 
there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let me say this again. If your heart is soft through repentance towards God, which basically is changing your thinking, which then of course changes your behavior. If you see things the way God sees them, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, that without faith it's impossible to please God. We must, this word we hear it a lot, we read it a lot in books, a world view. Well, what's that mean? It's your view of the world. And many people have diametrically opposed worldviews. Some are close, some are shared. It just means it's the way you see the world. But for the Christian, we see the world the way God sees the world. Well, first of all, he so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. And then we go through these 31,108 verses, and we learn of God's view of sin, of repentance, of forgiveness, of all that God has done, is doing, and will continue to do until the consummation of the ages, until it's all finished. We're in that process now. Again, I submit to you that if your heart is soft, this begins to give you hope. It washes you, cleanses you. When we have a communion service, it's not simply a tradition of the church, though it is a tradition. Jesus' tradition. That and water baptism, the only two true traditions given to us by God himself, by Christ. And we understand that there is no impediment to us spending eternity with him. That we will see him face to face. That every believer in Christ today, wherever they may be, who is going to pass from this life to the next will close their eyes in one room and open their eyes in another place altogether. Amen. And see all that they knew, all the people who had also received Christ, and there shall we ever be with the Lord. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. This time of year, of course, we're approaching in football, the Super Bowl. And it's not that I'm not interested in sports. I happen to like sports. I'm choosy about which sports I like and which I don't. But in the end, you can always depend that this life, one way or the other, always forms you some little form of death. Your team made it to the Super Bowl all the way there, but they lose. Now, some are just mature enough to be a bit disappointed, but I know people who scream at their television, scream at their television, throw things around, throw things away. And I don't want to say that I was any different in years past. I wasn't. Now I say to myself, what difference does it make? They're not making any money for me. They're not supporting me. They don't even come to the church. Not this church. <laughs> Do I care if they win or lose? Well, in a moderate sense, yes. You get married, and you're genuinely in love, and your partner passes away. I've had a few of these come my way just recently. And what you're tasting is just a little bit of the death of what the Bible calls sin. Yet we read that Jesus came to deliver his people from sin. Not just the practice of sin, but the penalty of sin. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of death, sin is the sting of death. And now the saying is, the biblical saying, O death, where is thy sting? Where is your victory? Because we have been given the gift of eternal life. In this season of Christmas, we exchange gifts. And let's be honest, sometimes we don't know what to get certain people. People at this stage, you know, ask me, well, what do I want or what do I need? But I'm at a stage in my life where I just don't need a whole lot. So it's a little bit difficult even for me to say, oh, I like this or I like that. I don't know what to say. But nothing that you can receive this year from anybody 
compares to the gift of everlasting life. That even if they bury you, Jesus said, yet you shall live. But that's predicated once again upon a heart that's soft, that actually believes that. Because we're taught, when it comes to death, that we should not sorrow as others who have no hope. I remember reading about Socrates before he drank the poison hemlock. A question was asked of the great philosopher, shall we live again? His response was, can only hope so. Far cry from what Jesus said. No man can come to me except the Father draw him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him, her up, on the last day. That's why we could, in one sense, refer to not only, of course, Christ, but ourselves as indestructible. That we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That whatever comes our way is working for good. And this is something that I submit to you from this day forward. You should put into your mind. You don't have to understand it. And I'm not talking about when we willfully disobey the word of God and things don't go well. I'm talking about when things come into our life that we simply don't understand why. We really don't have to understand why. And you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. I'm a thinker. I think a lot. But I've learned as I've gotten older and older, some things are just not worth thinking because I'm not going to come to a conclusion. Not one that satisfies me. And so it's easier to trust. Only believe, Jesus said. Just believe. You'll notice here in this Bible, there is not often a lot of explanations on a lot of questions we all have. But you find this repeated throughout the Bible. Believe. Believe me. Do this. And so on. Emmanuel, God with us. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35 says, And the angel answered and said unto her, which of course is Mary, The Holy Ghost, Spirit, shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. If you took all of the miracles surrounding Jesus' life, not just the ones that he performed, but the ones that surround his life, the extraordinary events of his life that makes him incomparable to anybody else. There's not even a comparison. This one alone merits attention. A young woman, no doubt a teen, is told by God himself through an angel, Gabriel, You're going to have a child who is going to be actually the son of God. And she asks the question. She says, well, how can this be? I've never known a man. And this is the verse that we get from that. Luke 1.35 is that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. This is a very interesting word. But the best that I can do to relate it to you is to go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says that the Spirit was just hovering over this soon-to-be planet and universe, and then created it. It says he spoke into existence everything that we know. And so we have a young woman, as we've covered this in times past, but again, the Bible is a book that you just can't read it. As a matter of fact, any really good book, you can't just read it, you have to study it. I have books beyond the Bible, I mean books outside the purview of the Bible, just subjects that interested me. I've got one book, I think I've read it maybe 50 times. It's true. About 50 times. Something like that. Because it so interests me in what is in it, and it's not a biblical book. It's just that it points to biblical principles. And it fascinates me that this man had this wisdom. 
The Bible, though, as I just gave you from 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13 and 2 Timothy 1 and verse 20 and 21 and 2 Timothy 3, 15, 16, 17 and so on, that this book was written by God himself. So whatever God instructs us to do, like Mary said at the wedding of Cana, do it. Whatever he says to you to do, do it. Because to not do it is for us to believe a lying vanity and forsake our own mercy. Forsake our own peace. And so when we look at the Bible and we begin to understand that God became a man and dwelt amongst us. He walked amongst us. In John 1.14, let me read it to you. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word was made flesh. A little backward up on the chapter, we go to verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Listen, at the third verse of John chapter 1, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So I mentioned earlier to you, First John, the first epistle of John in chapter 1, we beheld Him. In John chapter 1, the gospel according to John, it says, We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And for clarity, let's understand that we are called the children of God by adoption. But whatever God begets is God. We know this from nature. He is the only begotten, not a begotten. He's the only begotten of the Father. He shall be called the Son of God. You shall call his name Jesus. And from that point on, the world was literally turned upside down. All that Jesus did and all that Jesus said. And then we come from his birth to his death. And others, of course, Peter in particular, are trying to talk him out. Going to a Roman cross. He rebukes Peter and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. And then in another place he says, this is the reason I came into the world. I want to say to you today that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to forgive every sin you've ever committed. And though we are taught in 1 John chapter 2 at verse 1 not to sin, it says, but if we do, we still have, I put the word still in, we still have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. This is humbling, but it's still true. We are called saints in the Bible. I know that some denominations make saints a very special people. The Bible makes saints of the common people. Simply called out ones. They weren't perfect. Peter and Paul, they weren't perfect. Even after they did everything they did, they still weren't perfect. Read the record. And yet, we are called the sons of God by adoption. Jesus is God come in the flesh. And the beauty of the hour in which we live, in which God chose for us to be born, is that he's coming again. I was reading about Antarctica. I know a couple of people who were in the Air Force. I think both are retired now. One I know for certain is retired. Who made regular trips to Antarctica. And there was a man who was down there who had a key to every single room in the facilities that are down in Antarctica. And he was explaining, or perhaps we could say blowing a whistle, I don't know, of the technology that's down there that the average American is not aware of. And... Of course, there's the telescope that we know about where it's looking back in time, back to the beginnings of the universe. But one of the pieces of technology is a device that is shot out into space 
which he was told has been dismantled, don't worry about it. But when he got there, he found it fully operational. Now listen, like Avi Loeb, the professor from Harvard I talked to you about a few weeks ago, he said this is not just for receiving signals in case there's someone out there. He says this is for giving signals. Now Avi Loeb, as I told you, he's saying we should not ignore these so-called aircraft and aliens and what have you. He's a highly respected, internationally respected astrophysicist. And the idea is this, that we're about to make contact. And I agree, except not necessarily with Avi Loeb or whatever the scientists are saying out there. Because when I look in the book, Jesus said, every eye shall behold me. And they shall see me. Behold, he comes with clouds. And we're about to make contact, all right. We're not making contact with aliens who have been out there and other intelligent life from other galaxies. We're going to make contact with the Creator. Every single living person and everyone who has ever lived ever, as we read again in Revelation, the dead will come out of the sea, they'll come out of the ground, they'll come out of caves. Everyone who's ever lived is going to meet the Creator, the one we have right here called Emmanuel, and give an account for their lives. Jesus comes along and he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you at rest today? Because my experience has told me, taught me rather, that most professing Christians are not at rest. They are restless. Most Christians that I have either dealt with or known don't seem to exude joy, but have the same type of perplexing look on their face or thoughts in their mind that we read about in the world. But that's not part of your heritage. That's not what Christ came to bring you. You have the same troubles everybody else does, and we have added afflictions because we're overcoming the works of the flesh. That's a crucified life. But with all of that in mind, we find in Romans 8 that the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. And who gives us this peace? It comes from the spirit of God himself. This one here that we read about that would overshadow this young teenager and place this child in her womb without her ever knowing a man. I told you, just that miracle alone, if nothing else ever happened, other than Jesus giving platitudes, as philosophers do, many of which are very wise and very good. I read them. But none compares to Jesus. None compares to Jesus. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And you're going to have a child. She says, how can I have a child when I've never known a man? I've never been with a man sexually. And in a colloquial way, what is said to her is that this is a work of God. The same way as it was in creation. God is going to speak and your womb is going to conceive. And that child that's in you will be called the son of God. Not the son of Joseph. Remember her husband. She was engaged to, but they had not come together. It was part of the marriage contract to be engaged for a period of time. And then the consummation of the marriage. She had never known a man and gave birth. Then we can go through the other details. Maybe we'll cover a little bit of that tonight in the evening service. The unusual sign. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Well, that's not much of a sign. But it was where he was. In a stable, in a horse trough. Now, that was unusual. Remember, no room for you at the end. There's no room. Some people are like that. There's no room for you, Jesus, in my heart. I've got things to do. I've got places to go. I've got people to see. I've got a busy life. And Christmas the Christmas season, look at people, including the professing Christians, rushing here, there, all these things to do. And in my own opinion, and it's just my opinion, I think the spirit of Christmas is lost. Amen. I truly do, not just my opinion. 
rushing. People look haggard. I went out just to get something small from the grocery store and I could hardly find a parking space. That's just here. Well, I'm not against all that. I, I like Christmas. I'm just saying that we cannot lose the profound truths. The profound truths found in that one word, Emmanuel. God with, now make it personal, God with me. I don't know. I guess I mentioned his name, Rex Humbard. The evangelist, he would come out and start off his program with, you are loved. Well, that's true, but there was an intuitive sense in me that there was something disingenuous about it. And I'm not saying that it was. It was just me, maybe. But I know others felt the same way. I had a man call me up one day, and we were not getting along, a Christian man. I'm not sure why he was calling me. Well, I am sure why he was calling me. He wanted to meet. They were trying to manipulate me into a position where I was not going to be. And he starts out on the phone, and we're not getting along. And he's a bit older than me, and I'm not young. And he says on the phone, Brother, has anybody today told you that they love you? And I looked up to the ceiling in my eyes, and I was peeved. And I just simply said, no, they haven't. Let me be the first. This was all manipulation. It had nothing to do with the context of the conversation that was to follow, which was, will you do this? And the answer is still no. Oh, okay, then there's nothing to talk about. Where's the unconditional love you always talk about and I hear from your pulpit? It's not unconditional. Don't fall for that one either. God is love. If you believe on me, if you follow me, if you take up your cross, those are conditions. Not maybe on God's love, but they're conditions nonetheless. Let me read to you one more verse found in the second chapter of Daniel. A dream that Daniel had, prophetic dream. And it's explained to him what this dream means and has great relevance for you and for me. With respect to what we read in Isaiah chapter 9, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Keeping in mind, if you will, if you can actually remember a week ago, that the government has always been upon God's shoulders. One day it will manifest where every eye can see it. In Daniel chapter 2, 34 and 35. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands. That shows you that this is not the work of man. Which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together. Now just quickly. Each one of these metals and the clay represent empires. All of them are gone. They've already been disintegrated. The exception being the fact that the Roman Empire still exists in portions here or there. And as we understand Bible prophecy, they will come together again. But it never will be as strong as it was. That's the iron legs and feet. In any case, the stone is taken out of the mountain, not made with men's hands. And broke the iron, clay, brass, silver, gold to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away. But no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Revelation 11:15. And the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Emmanuel, make it personal. God with me. Bring it down to this local church. God with us. Bring it to the worldwide church, God's church. God with his people. God's sovereignty. I will say this one last time as I finish today. When properly read, you will find the Bible is irresistible. 
I didn't say easy. This is not like some reads that are actually easy reads. However, when we pray for God to help us to understand, things come alive. Which, by the way, we find in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick, that means alive. Zao is the Greek word, and it means that the word of God is alive. It has power to those who absorb the words, in a manner of speaking, absorb the words that are in the book, and the sense of, let me use the word energy, you could sense it in your body as well as your brain. For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when you're properly reading the book, there could be anything from just an excitement on simple passages like the forgiveness of our sins to passages that talk about, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Passages that deal with our thought processes that point out that our thinking is in the wrong direction. Go this way and so on. I will submit to you that the understanding of Scripture, which does belong to the Holy Spirit, it's not merely academic, will so change you, even if you say, well, I've been in the Bible for many, many years. This book has no end, my opinion. It just has no end. I've been studying this book, and every time I go there, it's just like the ocean. Depths I haven't seen. Every square inch I couldn't possibly know. And I must say, in one manner of speaking, it's a bit discouraging to know that in this lifetime I will never understand everything in this book and to say that no one does, no scholar does. They may know more, but they don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. Then on the other hand, I know that I cannot exhaust this book, that I have to read it again and again and again and again, for it's the Word of God. It's the words of God, as I just quoted to you earlier and just now. Emmanuel, Christmas is, and I enjoy Christmas. I truly do. The lights, the celebration, the exchange of gifts. I love it all. I truly do. But nothing compares to this book. Amen. Because come Tuesday, on the 26th of December, and some, you'll see them already taking their trees down, lights, whatever. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. So the man across the street from me had his house completely decorated with the lights and everything and just took everything down. But that's when it's superficial. That's when seed is falling on this glass pulpit. It's not producing anything. Here's the Bible, the seed of the Word of God. It's not going to produce anything in this glass pulpit. And it will not produce anything in a heart that's hardened. Nothing. Matthew chapter 13, read it. But it will produce fruit unto eternal life in the heart that's soft before God. Be soft before God. In this Christmas season, don't let your mind get distracted with all the activities, though they be good. With all the things that must be done, though they must be done. Don't let yourself get distracted from the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Because you have Emmanuel. You have God with us. You have Christ in us, the hope of glory. If we have any students of literature here, that was your major in college. If you've read classics, I've read some classics. I've read some very good books, but nothing compares to the Bible. And if you were to say to me, you have to give up every single book in your library, you can only keep one, well, obviously, it would be the Bible. We can live without the classics. We can live without the great works of literature. But we cannot live without the Word of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, in Psalm 119, 105. Make it your lamp. 
Light up the tree of your life with the word of God. And you'll be able to see things that others apparently cannot see. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're blind and you don't know. Father, we just ask you today, in this Christmas Eve, open the eyes of the blind. Open the eyes, God, of our understanding so that we may see Jesus. Not just on paper, but we may see Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Help us not to see just mere history of what took place 2,000 years ago. But rather help us to see what is happening now with God in us. Help us, God, to become more reverent in this vulgar world. Become more decisive on what's a priority in life and what is not. We ask for your help. We ask for the power and presence of your spirit. Fill us. God, touch your people. Touch me. Touch us all. That we may appreciate Emmanuel. God with us. Gives us hope. Gives us strength. Gives us peace. And when we lack these things, help us not to question you, but to say, what am I doing wrong? Because this is the normal Christian life. Today, Lord, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. For you, O God, are great and greatly to be praised. So, Lord, we just thank you and bless you and praise you till we come together in a few hours that we may once again know the value of Jesus. Cause us, God, to remember to love you with everything we have, all the heart, soul, mind, and the strength, and to love one another as well. We give you the praise, we give you the glory, and we give you the honor for all these things today. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Can you say amen with me today? Amen.